0: Welcome to Sweet Valley Diaries, the podcast where, when you assume, you make a giant, collective mega-ass of the entire town. (laughs) Book number 37, Rumors. Can Susan live with the truth? So,
1: this was a weird one. It was a little weird. I I think that um, there's
0: some stuff we can talk about. (laughs) Well, let's start. I'll introduce the show in a more normal way. Hi, I'm Marissa (laughs) Flaxbart, your host, and I am joined via Zoom video conference call by my great friend, Meredith Halsey. Hello, everyone. Um, Already a member of the extended family of the Sweet Valley (laughs) Diaries universe. Um, Our good friends Mary Parker and Dan Gaspari were on the show, and closer to home, uh, your very own husband, Frank. Yes, I am in the same room that he uh,
1: recorded his episode.
0: (laughs) I edited out the part of that recording where he paused for a few minutes to say that you were home. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I barged into the room because I didn't know he was, um, he was gonna be on the podcast on that day. And I thought he was on a work call. And then I was like, Oh, sorry, 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 sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He was really irritable, as I recall about the whole business.
1: I don't know. I guess he thought that I would uh, psychically intuited that he was on on a call with me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I both know that Frank is very serious about Sea Valley High, selectively. <laughs> I mean, only when he chooses to, to turn his eye to it, and I, yeah. for some, something for which I'm I'm greatly appreciative. But we're not here to talk about your husband or about his book. We're here to talk about your book, this book, and there is a girl on the cover of it who is named Susan, apparently Susan Stewart. Poor Susan. Gladiators, are you tired yet of this parade of randos? Because I'm kind of starting to enjoy it. I'm getting to a point where we have had book after book of these weird, uh, unknown characters or like little known characters and their stories. And at first it was just like, who the hell are these people? But now I'm kind of like, yeah, great. Let's have some weird stories about weird people. This is a really weird one. Um, Yes. Yeah, it's
1: pretty weird. And honestly, you know, it's been it's been a minute since I visited the uh, the twins in Sweet Valley. And so when it started, and we're focusing on Susan, throughout the book, I was like, Oh, isn't isn't Elizabeth and Jessica going to get into some some hijinks? And they really didn't. And so I was just like, Oh, oh, that's a
0: surprise. Yeah, they're really their story is really not connected to Susan's story almost at all. Right. But furthermore, This book, while it has a beautiful picture on the cover, we should talk about the cover, Mm -hmm. of Susan Stewart, and the subtitle is Can Susan Live with the Truth? And the back of the book says that it's about Susan. This book is only kind of about Susan. I think it takes about like four or five chapters before the rumors part of the book starts. Yes. And Susan is only like a passing character that other people see and sometimes comment on.
1: Have we met Susan before?
0: Only? Okay, so this is actually a great question, because in the previous episode for Book 36, um, my guest and I were talking about Susan Stewart. She was introduced, Susan Stewart and Gordon Stoddard, because the idea of the Bridgewater Ball came up. And Jessica was dating this guy Rob Atkins, and he he went to Bridgewater. Well, we had never heard of Bridgewater before. And this book almost made it seem like Bridgewater wasn't actually a school. It was just a town. But I think it was a school, too. But lo and behold, in this book, Jessica and Rob Atkins have broken up. Lila does has no date to the Bridgewater ball. And in the previous book, we thought that Susan Stewart went to Bridgewater, but Gordon went to Sweet Valley High. That was what was purported. But no, in fact, Susan and Gordon both go to Sweet Valley High. <laughs> And it's just that Gordon is a member of, so Gordon's daughter is Susan Stewart's boyfriend. They're mm-hmm. both people that go to Sweet Valley High. We'll introduce them in passing. Got it. Um, okay. But they both go to Sweet Valley High. And they were just introduced in the last book. Is That's my very long answer to your very simple question.
1: You actually answered a couple of other questions, such as, what is Bridgewater? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well yeah we didn't never heard of that before the last right, book either right so this whole book also i should say right off the bat really felt like some other person that had never written a sweet valley high novel dropped down into it to to write this one okay um and for for better for the most part like it was funny it had weird humor it had some sort of almost sexual jokes in it and i mean almost almost
1: well we're talking about pregnancy.
0: Yeah. So (laughs) let's talk about the cover. And then I guess we might as well start by talking about what the book is really about, which is not Susan Stewart at all. But it is a rumor. Yes. Sort of. Yes. So on the cover of this book, can you see the cover on your ebook? Yes. Yes. So here's a lovely lady. She looks very sad.
1: (laughs) Well, she's got red hair. And she's just in those classic uh, teenage... On on her bed, face down, on her pillow, just a sad sack.
0: She's staring sadly into the middle distance, as is often the case on these covers, but sadder than usual. No Wakefield's in sight yet Mm -hmm. again. She's wearing some kind of white shirt. So this Susan Stewart, one of the main things that we know about Susan Stewart is that she wears really nice clothes. Yeah. And that might not seem like a big deal, but the fact that Susan has beautiful, expensive clothes is a big part of her myth. Like, it's true, but it's it's a myth, the myth around her, which is that she... Let me see if I have a passage that I can read about Susan <clears throat> that can introduce her pretty well. Um, and it'll be funny. Okay, yeah, it'll be funny because this is on page 17. Never mind, it won't be funny at all. <laughs> The passage will be funny, but I I thought it was going to be like, oh, it'll be funny that this won't be until chapter five that we finally get a look at it. But Mm -hmm. that's not really the case. This is on page 17. So just to start off, if you didn't listen to book 36, go listen to it. But it sets up at the very end the idea that there is this very, very fancy dance ball that's happening in this rich town. Which, first of all, there's a richer town than Sweet Valley? (laughs) There's there's a town so rich that the Sweet Valley people are like, whoa, whoa, those Bridgewater people are really hella fancy.
1: Well, and it it that came through loud and clear through the book. And I was starting to think that maybe Sweet Valley was
0: more like middle class, was like a rich area. Because... I think that's true. I think okay. it must be true. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, there's so much to talk about. It's always hard to, to focus in. But I think maybe this will set us up well, this passage, um, which is where... Jessica and Lila are talking about going to the dance and Jessica's asking Lila, who is really peeved that she doesn't have a date for the dance yet, and you have to be invited and also it's very expensive to go to the dance. Uh, so the tickets are like thousands of dollars, apparently. <laughs> That's the impression I got, at least.
1: I also got the impression it, – it, that is what was really confusing to me, because they were like, oh, it's so exclusive, only, only the best people, only the right kind of people go – and then somebody makes a comment of, "Oh well, I can just get tickets." And I was like, "Well, what is it? Can you buy tickets, or can, do you need an invitation? Is this open to everybody?" And I was starting to think maybe this is a fundraising event, so the tickets would be pretty expensive, and only a certain kind of person with money would be interested in going. But no, you're telling me that this is a high school dance.
0: It's unclear. Well, then the but the one guy's Gordon Stoddard's parents are gonna go. Gordon Stoddard's parents yeah. are named Binky and what? Farley. Binky and Farley yeah. Stoddard. Yeah. Oh, typical rich person names, obviously. Yeah, yeah. They, we meet them on the golf course at the country club. All right. So, Lila and Jessica mm-hmm. talking. And Jessica's kind of pushing Lila's buttons. Lila was one of her best friends, but there were times when Jessica had a hard time dealing with her friend's snobbish attitude. Well, do you know who else is going? Girls from Whitehead, mostly, Lila answered. Whitehead Academy was the private girls' school in Bridgewater. No one but the most well-to-do went there. But hardly anyone from Sweet Valley High, of course. I bet Susan Stewart is going, Jessica speculated, as a tall, graceful redhead took a seat near the front of the room. With Gordon Stoddard, of course. Listen, Jess, nobodies don't go to the Bridgewater Ball. Jessica stared at Lila, open-mouthed. Nobody's? Come on, Susan probably is a somebody, and you know it. I mean, first of all, she lives with that woman who takes care of her, and nobody knows who her mother is, except that she obviously sends a lot of money. Susan wears the most incredible clothes. They're okay, muttered Lila, sending a narrow-eyed look up the aisle to Susan Stewart. If you like that style. I mean, I could go on, I, but I, I, I'm always fighting the urge to read the whole book. <laughs> so that's the myth Of Susan. Right. She is probably the daughter of someone very wealthy, but it's a big secret.
1: Right. And we know this because she has stylish clothes, if you like the style, that are clearly expensive. So I don't know how we're defining expensive and how 16 year olds can spot expensive clothes.
0: Yeah, well, like, why do they know? But apparently they know. Yeah. This has come up in the books before. Like, Jessica cha- had a change of style, and suddenly she was wearing really expensive-looking clothes, and Lila has a bunch of expensive-looking clothes. Like, people just know. But Susan is raised by someone who is her guardian, whose name is Mrs. Reister. hmm Mrs. Reister, we learn through the course of the book, is a waitress, but she also moonlights as a seamstress. Mm-hmm. And Susan wonders why the woman works so hard when her mother sends all this money, but there is a big promise that Susan will be told who her mother is on her eighteenth birthday. Right, right. Which it's kind of a fairy tale, I guess. It's kind of child abuse. Well, that's that makes sense. The fairy tales are often uh, stories of child abuse. I think. Yeah,
1: that's. I mean, that's what I was just thinking throughout the entire thing. She's sixteen. She's been raised by a guardian and raised pretty well. That's that's nice. That's great. But to not know who your parents are seems yeah, like she doesn't torture. know who her
0: father is either. But she doesn't think about that. That's not, like not a part of the rumor. Like the yes. Mrs. Reister only talks about how she'll find out who her mother is on her eighteenth birthday. Right. So. Right. But uh, so we teased at the beginning of the episode that Susan Stewart's drama, which we will talk more about, was not really what the core of the book was about. So should we talk about what the first several chapters of this book appear to be about? Yes, let's do it. (laughs) It is a rumor. I mean, there's that. But early on at the beginning of the book, there's this conversation like, Elizabeth is reading the newspaper. Mm hmm. This is actually an example of right off the bat, I was like, I wish I knew who the ghostwriters of these books were. Because this one, it has this weird comment where at the very beginning of the book, Elizabeth is reading the newspaper and Jessica like takes the comics from her. Mm-hmm. And it says, Oh, give me a break, Jessa exclaimed a moment later, looking jam off one finger. This has got to be the stupidest joke in the whole world. Listen to this. What kind of ghost lives in an easy chair? An upholstergeist. Alice Wakefield let out a peal of laughter. Oh no, who writes jokes like that? Sick people, Elizabeth suggested with a lopsided grin. People with deranged minds. Jessica shook her head. Sick people is right. Say, Mom, when's Dad coming back from Phoenix? Mrs. Wakefield lowered her section of the newspaper a fraction and met her daughter's questioning gaze. Is that a free association with sick people? It's just, like, this, this, like, pithy, jokey conversation that they're having that's, like, kind of weird jokes. It's, like, realistic, but it doesn't really sound like the Wakefields. They're having this, like, yuck up morning.
1: Yeah, and kind of late in the morning, too. The sun's up, they're taking their time, reading a paper.
0: Yeah, and school. I was actually surprised. I was actually really surprised when Alice was like, don't you guys have to get to school? Because I thought it was the weekend. But we're... Alice starts talking about how a couple of names would be good. Like, Andrea is a pretty name. Mm -hmm. She does make a weird comment out of nowhere about how Andrea is a pretty name.
1: Right, right. And so I was, when I was reading the book, I was like, okay, I better take some notes so I don't forget what's going on. And my note on that is Mrs. Wakefield is obviously pregnant. Right, and then
0: the very next minute she is making a face in front of the dishwasher or something Mm -hmm. and they're like what's wrong mom and she's like oh i just haven't really been feeling very well but you know i have a doctor's appointment later today and they're like oh what is it and she says like oh don't worry about it it's nothing so again this is the book telegraphing to us alice wakefield is pregnant yeah yeah it's like a,
1: a big big loud flashing sign
0: Right. Pregnancy but the twins here. are not there yet. Right. It takes... Jessica is the one who gets there first, and she gets there because in health class, we actually get a glimpse of, like, a sex ed class. Which is pretty awesome. I
1: had no idea that health class in Wealthy Sweet Valley had a textbook.
0: The news to me. <laughs> Did you have a textbook in health class? I didn't have health class. class. Oh, okay. We definitely had health class, and we had a textbook in our health class, so this was very easy flashback for me Got to it. health class. Was it like a but biology book? No, it's very, it's kind of a, they're always a little bit lame, you know, it's like our bodies, like getting to know our bodies. I mean, there's uh, biology elements to it, but Got it. Um, it, was, it was never a very thick book, let me put it that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but... Um, They're not really talking about sex ed either in the class. They're talking about fertility in women. Yeah. And the idea comes up that, you know, at a certain point – or infertility. They're talking about infertility in women. Mm -hmm. But somehow it comes up that for some women, you can get pregnant, you know, well into your 40s. Right. Different women have different, you know, fertile windows, let's say, in terms of where and how much of their life they'll be fertile for.
1: Right, right. And it was pretty notable that, like, in the class or when Jessica and Elizabeth were talking later, it was like, oh, women can get pregnant in their 40s? Ew. And I'm like staring (laughs) 40 in the face right now. I'm like, yeah, we. Same. (laughs) Pregnancy is still a threat or an option.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're coming at this from the opposite ends of it, but in both cases, it's like, hello, (laughs) chill out with that, girls. Of course, this is also 1987. So. It was a little bit of a different... It's a different um, time. <laughs> time. But, I mean, the book has some progressive language, too, about the idea of women choosing to have babies mm-hmm. or not. Like, yes. you know, Alice actually, in that first conversation, talks about how, like, Elizabeth is reading about how, oh, it says that more and more women are choosing to put their careers over, you know, mm-hmm. having children. And Alice was like, oh, that's too bad. You know, I love my career, but I would hate to not have you girls in my life. And, mm-hmm. you know, but it's a whole conversation. Right. Right. Which... Was like, okay, this is an interesting thing to be presenting to like young girls.
1: Yeah, Alice is having a nuanced thought about her family and her career, yeah. which is unusual. And also isn't repeated later on in the book. It's not repeated by her son. Her son has like this panic moment of, of I don't know if it's jumping ahead too far, but the rumor reaches Stephen, and then he's like, okay, if you need to quit your job for any reason, that's going to be okay. I'll contribute to the family
0: support. Right. That's how Stephen handles finding out the rumor. Jessica gets this inkling in her head that she puts the dots together and more weird stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Like her mom has a distinct craving for pistachio ice cream, mm-hmm. which this book series seems to be obsessed with because pistachio ice cream came up just a couple books ago, too. And um, so the the the, author
1: read two books back and was like, yeah, let's do a callback pistachio. Yeah, Yeah."
0: except in this book, they they make it seem like pistachio ice cream is like the grossest thing on (laughs) earth, instead of a delicious treat. Um, But I guess Wakefields hate it, but now Alice wants it. And, of course, Alice says this at the exact moment that Jessica is doing her health homework Mm -hmm. and reading about how sometimes pregnant women have cravings. Right. And then she overhears her parents have a whispered conversation about how they'll tell the twins later about something. I mean, it's it's actually not unreasonable that they jump to this conclusion. Like, all the signs point to pregnancy. 100%. I I was convinced. Yeah, but then Jessica talks to Elizabeth and she convinces Elizabeth and they decide that they're going to snoop around. And this was maybe the least convincing part of it to me because Jessica snoops through her mother's closet and somewhere hidden in the back of her closet, she finds like a baby sweater and hat in a bag from a baby clothes shop.
1: Right. And it's, um, it was underneath a pile of stuff in the closet.
0: Yes. Outdated stuff. Like, a macrame handbag right i appreciated that nod to like oh this is the late 80s now macrame is no longer in fashion (laughs) and i i also
1: sympathize my closet is a nightmare but when i purchase something it doesn't often end up at the bottom of the pile
0: right so that's already weird because we find out later that that's it was a recent purchase, so how it ended up there, I don't know. Right. The dog found it, by the way. Prince Albert is back, y'all. He wasn't in the last book, but he is a golden retriever again. So I think he's he's going to stay a golden retriever now. The, the dog changed? He was a yellow lab. <laughs> oh. Yeah, he was a yellow lab a couple times. Um, and so they think they finally landed on golden retriever oh, for no. now. But he also, I don't think, appeared at all in the previous book. Okay. <laughs> so... So they are convinced and they're going to try to convince their parents to tell them because they can tell that Alice and Ned don't want to tell the twins because they they think that the twins will, or the twins think that their parents think Mm -hmm. that they will be upset. Right. So they say weird stuff about how they love babies so much and wouldn't it be great to have a baby in the house? Right. And Alice... They're talking about this at dinner one night. This story, by the way, Gladiators, is spread throughout the book, which is part of why it feels so much like it's what the book is about. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So Alice tells the girls that she is going to need to talk to them later, and then the chapter ends, and we get a new chapter, and it starts like this. Even a typically brilliant Sweet Valley morning wasn't enough to lift Jessica's spirits. Her mind replayed the previous night's humiliating scene, and she gave an inward groan. Across the table, she noticed Elizabeth stirring her coffee in a desultory way. Jessica shuddered, and Elizabeth looked up. Pretty embarrassing, huh? With a heavy sigh, Jessica shook her head. Honestly, when Mom looked at us and said, which one of you is in trouble, I nearly died. (laughs) So, and Elizabeth says, yeah, I guess we kind of overdid it about saying how much we wanted to have a baby. (laughs) Like, I was just like, oh, I really was, like, like, so, I don't know what to say, aghast, excited. Just the idea that Alice is acknowledging the, I, the fact that either of her daughters could be having sex was just shocking to me in a great way. Just because these books are so loath to go there.
1: Wow. Yeah, it, it seemed, you know, it didn't seem like crazy out of place for me, but I guess, you know... I'm not coming from the context of reading all the rest of the books. Um, I was much younger in 1987, didn't grow up with a a family like that. But yeah, looking back, it does seem really progressive.
0: Oh, well, uh, to be clear, Mm -hmm. this is not weird at all that this happened. And especially in a modern day book, it would just be like... Yeah, duh. Mm -hmm. But having read now, this is the, well, I've read a bunch of the books, but, Mm -hmm. you know, this is book number 37 in the series. And the parents have really never had a serious talk with the girls or like the talk at all. Oh, my God. Um, Early on in the series, we talked a lot about how the books use the word sexy a lot, but they never say sex. Mm Mm-hmm. And this book doesn't say sex either, although at one point Jessica is thinking about how could her mother have gotten pregnant? And the book says, well, how was pretty obvious, but why? <laughs> it's like, ew, don't think about that. I mean, just because it's her parents. Just right, because it's her parents. exactly. Jessica's and thinking about sex all day long. I can't tell her to stop. It's, but.
1: They're, they're, it's because they're the parents. They're clearly in their early 40s and it's clearly disgusting for a woman in her
0: 40s to be pregnant that's just why it's ew ew. yeah
1: yeah obviously
0: (laughs) i mean and this story basically goes like we to to speed up to what you said about steven Mm -hmm. the (laughs) jessica sends like an urgent message to steven at college that he's gotta come home right away and everybody the, the kids like all the Wakefield kids are kind of excited about the mom having a baby and the idea of there being a new baby in the house, mm-hmm. including Steven, who takes it really well right away. And like you said, goes to have this talk with Ned where they're talking around the rumor. The parents both think the kids are acting so strange. Right. Right. And Steven basically says what you said before. Yeah.
1: Like, it's definitely like, hey, if if you need to quit your job, I will drop out of college and get a job and contribute to supporting the family. And that yeah. also made me think, like, how well off is this family? How well off is Sweet Valley? Um, how comfortable is their comfortable home? What does this mean? But they also yeah. have, like,
0: three cars, so... they. Well, the par- this that actually comes up, because so they have the Fiat that the twins drive. Mm-hmm. Steven has a yellow Volkswagen, and there's a time when that car pulls up and it says that both of the parents' cars are in the driveway. So apparently the Wakefields have four cars. Wow, Gladiators, my apologies if this has come up on the show before, and I just forgot. But uh, four cars seems like a lot. There's a point early on in the book where this does tie into Bridgewater a little bit, where Alice says something about how they're just humble people living their humble lives. And Elizabeth is like, In her internal monologue, thinks she knew her mother was joking. They have a very nice house.
1: (laughs) Okay, at least they know they're joking because this just seems like... I don't know what real estate was in California in 1987, but it still must have been pretty nice compared to the rest of the country.
0: Right? Yeah, well, and we, we have determined that Sweet Valley must be in Orange County. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know that real estate in Orange County is no cheaper than in Los Angeles County, right. really. Right, right. It's the same. <laughs> that's That's been a little bit of a real estate talk for you all, gladiators. <laughs> well, speaking of the wealth of Sweet Valley, I mean, that's basically the pregnancy story. Like, spoiler alert, gladiators, Alice Wakefield is not pregnant. Bizarrely. And what was the doctor's appointment about? Yeah, they don't even explain that. Right. They don't explain what the what the fantasizing about the names was, yeah. what the pistachio ice cream was about. It was all just a big coincidence. She bought the clothes for a friend's baby shower. The secret that they weren't going to tell the twins until they were sure was that they might be going out of town for a month and leaving Jessica and Elizabeth alone at home because they're parents of the year, mm-hmm. lest we forget. <laughs> but as long as we're talking about the, like, Wealth and income distribution of Sweet Valley, California. There was such an interesting moment that was funny and weird and actually addresses this kind of head on that I would love to read. So this is way back in health class, and a lot of our favorite characters are in this health class. First of all, Jessica and Lila and Susan Stewart are all in the class, but also Dana Larson, Winston Egbert, Maria Santelli, they're all they're all there. So Winston is making a big joke about how he'll take Lila to the dance. However much, even if he has to cash in his entire college fund to buy a ticket, he'll do anything to take her. He's totally joking. Winston is dating Maria Santelli these days, so he just is, and she's right there like laughing about how he's, he's teasing Lila. A chorus of laughter made Lila blush even more. Dana shook her head. Those elitist social events are so bogus. It's just a way for rich people to make themselves feel superior to everyone else. You're only saying that because that's the only party around that the droids aren't asked to play at, Winston said, sending her a fiendish grin. Yeah, right. I know, Winston declared, jumping to his feet. We can start an annual Poor People's Ball, nobody with incomes of more than $500 a year allowed. Speech, speech, called Dana, tapping on her desk. Winston assumed an air of modesty, then stood up on his chair. Thank you, thank you, everybody. The first annual Poor People's Cotillion will be held in this classroom every February 30th from now on. Potato sacks are acceptable dress. Black tie. That means wear shoes with black laces in them. No fair. My sneakers have white laces, Ken Matthews called out, leaning back in his seat and sticking his feet up in the air for inspection. Winston solemnly regarded Ken's sneakers and shook his head. You don't qualify. I'm most terribly, terribly sorry. Oh, no, wailed Ken, burying his face in his hands. All I ever wanted was to go to the ball and dance with Winston Egbert. Well, if that's all you want, why didn't you say so? Winston jumped down, and while the whole class looked on and laughed, the two boys danced boisterously around the room. This has been a sneak attack, part of the podcast where we talk about boys. Oh, <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> well, they were dancing together around the room, which seems like totally adorable and cute and normal, and not something that any of my high school boy classmates would ever have done in a yeah, years. I was
0: like, oh my gosh, I'm so proud of Ken and Winston for being so secure in their in masculinity or whatever you want to call it, that they are comfortable dancing with each other around the room and joking about it. Furthermore, I don't know, but this poor people's cotillion is interesting. I mean, I think they're just talking about how as teenagers they don't have any money, but <laughs> they turn it into a bit of a farce. Like, there pro- they probably should yeah. be a poor people's cotillion. I don't know. I'm Actually, that's not a soapbox that I'm going to get onto.
1: <laughs> no, it, but it's also, you know prom is sort of that, you know, Like prom at a high school should be calibrated to what the kids at the high school can afford, right? You know, and if it it doesn't need to be fancy can be in your gym, blah, blah, blah. Or it can be a Sweet Valley level prom where I'm assuming they would rent out a ballroom and you'd have to buy a dress and, and all of this nonsense. So in terms of a poor people's cotillion, that's, that's your prom. Yeah, that's and it's not like poor, it's what you it's can afford for every, every or what, man, what is reasonable every woman
0: yeah, every yeah
1: yeah and that's kind of what i was picking up on like throughout this entire book because they're fixated on style and clothes and money and who's got more money and sweet valley doesn't have as much money as bridgewater and susan has like an unknown quantity of money which makes her mysterious and sexy and um, we know that Jessica and Elizabeth don't have as much money as Lila Fowler. It's just like constantly jockeying because they're they're all like obsessed with status and and not even like teenager status, but like adult status anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. It was just it, was it weird. is
0: it is weird. And Sweet Valley is already this place where it's kind of escapism to see all these beautiful, wealthy people, like for actually in the real world, young kids, or even us now to read these books. And it seems so fancy. And the people that don't have a lot of money are already outcasts. Like when uh, Roger Barrett didn't have any money, he was an outcast. And then he found out he was a Patman and he was wealthy. And it was a whole big thing. Like, there are storylines already within Sweet Valley that are like this. Now we like, zoom out. And we find out that even in the sort of greater Sweet Valley area where these other towns are, there's Sweet Valley is not the peak. Sweet Valley is not the pinnacle of wealth. When we first get a chance to be with Susan, without the high school without the Wakefields, and we get a look inside Susan's head, she's with her boyfriend Gordon, and his parents at the country club playing golf. And just kind of like, feeling that she is being allowed to be there because the parents approve of her and think she's like the right kind of people. And Gordon keeps on apologizing for the elitist things that his parents are saying. Right,
1: And then they're on the, uh, they're getting to be on the membership board specifically to keep the wrong kind of people from getting into the club. Right.
0: And and the wrong L kind of element from moving into Sweet Valley. Um. Mm-hmm. Which even as I say it out loud, definitely sounds like it has some kind of racial undertones, but the book doesn't really go there uh, right. at all.
1: Right. You're kind of just like left to think about your own your own version of the wrong kind of people and who that might be.
0: Yeah, and Susan is wondering about that. But, you know, Gordon at this point makes mm-hmm. a fairly good impression because he is just constantly apologizing for his parents' weird, like, elitism, as I mentioned
1: yeah yeah but they're all playing golf the kids were playing yeah. golf
0: the the mom binky stoddard <laughs> invites susan to come to the meeting of the garden society in the, over the weekend like it'll be great to meet some people and i was just like this is a 16 year old girl like you don't need to take her to your garden society meeting but it's a stretch to make her play golf with you <laughs> right, already right. you know
1: She's being extraordinarily yeah. polite and well-mannered yeah. being at a golf course. So the big,
0: the Susan of it all, like the Susan story is very yeah. closely connected to Lila Fowler, who is the closest thing we have to a main character in this drama. Um, in mm-hmm. term, Sorry, I mean, a part of our like main cast of characters, like we said earlier that the Wakefields are not really connected into Susan's story very much, but Lila is pivotal to it because she's... Freaking right. jealous. She's so jealous of Susan.
1: She The book starts and, and Lila is saying, Susan's a nobody. Out of nowhere, Susan ha- is a question mark. We don't know who she is, but Lila's convinced, like, oh, she's a nobody. Just because Lila doesn't like her, maybe it's... Maybe because Susan has good hair and good clothes and Lila's upset right. about
0: that. And Lila has this chip on her shoulder, I think, because, the, I mean, the book even talks about the fact that Lila's family is new money. So Lila's father is ridiculously mm-hmm. wealthy. They're like the richest people in town. But it's like they're still not quite good enough for the Bridgewater people because they're new money. So the fact that nobody knows what kind of money Susan Stewart is because we don't know who her mom really is, and it's all just this rumor that she's got a wealthy mom really pisses Lila off. And I think that maybe Susan has a, like, a humility and a natural grace that Lila does not have. Lila's grace mm-hmm. and attitude in general and glamour are sort of put on like cultivated, whereas Susan doesn't really try, because she doesn't, Susan doesn't think of herself as important. She wonders a lot about who her mom is, but she's like, she wonders in this book, is it true? I wonder. I can't wait to really find out, but I, I wonder who she could really be.
1: Right. Right. And it seems like such uh, work for Lila. Yeah. And, and how, like, you know, putting putting myself in Lila's shoes, of course she'd be pissed off. She's just like, you know, this is terrible. Like, I have to work so hard to maintain this persona or you know, maintain a level of popularity, maintain a level of respect, keep my clothes nice. And there's Susan, who it just comes naturally to
0: so effortlessly – Um, How could she not hate her? Right. Well, and so Lila knows something that I hope we've made clear, listeners, because it is nonsense. Like, it's nonsensical. So I hope that we have gotten this across. Everything that is mysterious and glamorous and wealthy about Susan hinges on the fact that people think her mom might be wealthy and there is a mystery about who she is. She sends money, but she can't admit that she has a child. It's boggles the mind. Like the whole, the whole backstory doesn't make any sense, but everybody in town <laughs> has just bought into it, including Susan. So. Yeah. I mean, she's bought into the idea that her mom just can't admit who she is for some reason, which mm-hmm. it, I don't even know where to begin with that, but whatever. We have to we have to accept it. We have to swallow that for the rest of the story to work. But Lila knows that this mother mystery is what Susan's glamour hinges on. So she gets this idea around chapter five mm-hmm. to start a rumor. <laughs> when we got to this part of the book, I was like, oh, finally, a rumor. This book is called Rumors. <laughs> of course, I realize now that there's also the rumor about who Susan's real mother was from the get-go, and there's the rumor going yeah. around the Wakefield family that Alice Wakefield is pregnant. So there are other rumors involved here, but this is the core rumor. Yeah. It finally, uh, when I say Chapter 5, Gladiators, this book only has 13 or 14 chapters. So over a third of the way through the book. And I'm going to read the scene, if I may. I'm going to kind of edit a little bit. So I'm going to be I'm not going to read straight through because otherwise I'd be reading like three pages. (laughs) But I'll I'll kind of skip (laughs) around a little bit here to get the point across. This is on page 58. Everybody is in the cafeteria and Lila is kind of looking around, looking angrily at Susan Stewart. And also, Kara Walker and Caroline Pierce are both there sitting with Lila, and Lila thinks about the fact that they're both kind of reformed gossips. So that's key, too. So Lila's really being a mastermind here. As Kara and Caroline talked, Lila kept her gaze fixed on Susan Stewart, who was deep in conversation with Gordon Stoddard. Who does she think she is, anyway? Lila fumed internally. Just because her mother is supposed to be some mysterious, famous person. She needs to be taught a lesson. Kara's voice intruded on her thoughts, and Lila focused her attention on the two girls sitting across from her. Kara was a reformed gossip too, just like Caroline. But if there really was something, something really big, really juicy, Lila knew they'd be unreformed pretty fast, no doubt about it. I think it's so sad, don't you? She said, casually wiping her mouth with a paper napkin. Caroline's green eyes widened slightly, and Kara paused with her sandwich halfway to her mouth. What is? Caroline asked slowly. About Susan Stewart. Don't you think it's awful? Carefully putting down her sandwich, Kara drew a deep breath. What about Susan Stewart? Lila's face registered alarm and surprise and just a touch of hesitation. Oh, she faltered, looking from one to the other. I... I thought you knew. All right, so Lila goes on like this for like a page. Like, oh, I shouldn't say. Oh, I won't tell you. And then, um... Well, she said, leaning forward across the table, I heard she's found out who her mother is, and it's... Well, she broke off dramatically, taking stock of the reaction she was producing. Kara and Caroline were practically climbing across the table with curiosity. Just as she had expected. Caroline says... What? I mean, who... Lila toyed with her straw for a moment, then looked up again. It's not who, it's where. She lowered her voice as she added, in a hospital for the criminally insane. A shocked gasp escaped from both girls, and they craned their necks to look across the room at Susan. Are you serious? Kara hissed, her dark brown eyes widening. And Lila goes on to say, I mean, it's just something I heard. It could be a rumor. And like at the end... It says Kara grabbed her arm. Are you sure about this? An unpleasant sensation of guilt washed over Lila for a brief moment, but she quickly pushed it out of her mind. Well, she said slowly, nobody really knows anything for sure, do they? Then she carefully removed Kara's hand from her arm and walked away. As she passed by Susan's table, she felt a surge of triumph overcoming the guilt, and she strode out of the cafeteria with a victorious smile.
1: I mean, have we established that Carolyn and Kara are the most gullible people on the
0: planet (laughs) before this book? um, Maybe, I think, but it seems like the entire town is gullible, because first off, they already believe this nonsense about Susan Stewart's mother being someone rich and famous, when it's obvious who Susan Stewart's mother is. The book waits until, like, chapter 10 to reveal to us what color hair Mrs. Reister has, because if we knew, we would put it together immediately, even though we kind of already Mm -hmm. can, but... Everybody in Sweet Valley can see what color <laughs> Mrs. Reister's hair is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every time you've met somebody, like a friend of yours' mother, you can say like, oh, yes, clearly I, s- I know that you are related. So anybody who's new to Sweet Valley would come across them eventually and be like, oh, how's your mother? Right. And, and it, w- it would be blown, like the cover would be blown yeah. by the time the kid was six or seven. So rather than...
0: Uh, Gladiators, we are are implying here what you may already have put together. The woman who raises Susan from birth, the only woman that lives in her house with her, the woman who works her ass off, for some reason, even though supposedly the money is coming from elsewhere, that woman is, in fact, Susan's mother. And... (laughs) (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. And we know that. She knows that, but... Susan doesn't know it and nobody in Sweet Valley knows it and instead everybody fucking believes this ridiculous rumor that Kara and Caroline spread like wildfire through the community. Right. So fast. Yes. Does this rumor spread that like what what happens? She gets that phone call from this so, girl who's one of her Whitehead friends.
1: Right. I didn't catch that girl's name, but essentially um Susan had a dinner invitation. She was going to go to dinner with one of her fancy friends. And the friend calls and like, oh, something came up. We have to cancel dinner. Which like, okay, you know, that's fine. And Susan's picking up on her friend's tone of voice, which is... Not so great. You know, like, it sounds like the friend's Oh, yeah.
0: She says, I hope it's nothing serious. And the friend says, I'm afraid it's very serious, Susan. But she doesn't say what it is. And Susan notices that she didn't try to reschedule what the dinner would be. Hmm.
1: That's Mm -hmm. weird.
0: Well, then she goes to school and she notices that everybody is, like, not looking at her. Like, nobody will make eye contact and this is the most shocking part this happens sometimes i feel like we get to the climax of the book and there's just like tons of reading but the books get so exciting Mm -hmm. that it's hard not to just like read every single thing so susan's at her locker and gordon comes up to her and she says what a day i must be cracking up i swear people were staring at me everywhere i went Gordon looked quickly over his shoulder, and his eyes met hers briefly. Then he looked at the floor and said nothing. But I've decided I'm just going to ignore it, Susan continued, oblivious of Gordon's peculiar manner. I'm going to buy the material for my ball dress this afternoon. Tell your mom I'm taking her advice. It's going to be gold. A dull red blush washed over Gordon's handsome features, and he coughed into his fist. It was a dry, forced kind of cough. Susan began to feel alarmed. Well, um... About the Bridgewater ball, he said, avoiding her eyes. I have to. I can't. Now Susan's throat felt dry, too. And the nightmarish quality came flooding back. What are you trying to tell me, Gordon? I. He closed his mouth with a snap, then burst out. I can't take you to the ball. And apparently his parents have said that he can't take Mm her. And (laughs) then she's like, why? What's going on? And finally, she says but gordon i don't get it you're doing this because your parents told you to why he looked around quickly as she raised her voice and the color deepened in his cheeks susan he began his voice shaking with suppressed emotion susan you know what people are saying the loud pounding in her ears was her heartbeat susan realized through a fog no i don't know what people are saying what are they saying she asked her voice coming from far away Gordon suddenly exploded with indignant anger. You know perfectly well, Susan, so you can cut out the big innocent act. Your mother killed someone and she's been locked up your whole life in an asylum. She said nothing. She couldn't speak. Why did you have to lie, Susan? What gave you the right to tell everyone you were so important? (laughs) So now Susan knows the rumor.
1: Thank goodness, and she she found out in a totally reasonable and calm manner too.
0: <laughs> and Gordon is pissed off that like she pulled the wool over his eyes. Rather than a- asking her, is it true? He just assumes, right? But th- the worst part of it is that Susan is also like, oh no, my mother isn't in a sane asylum. Didn't it seem like that? <laughs> it, yeah, she immediately believes it because she,
1: and I, I think that she sees everybody's re- reaction to her. Gordon tells her what's wrong. And then she puts that together and says, Well, it must be true. Everybody believes it. Somebody must know something that I don't. Right. And, you know, all right, that's okay. It's 16 years old, not the smartest bulb on the block. Um, <laughs> and I felt like when she showed up at school and everybody's ignoring her and she's obviously an outcast, all of a sudden she was being really mature about it she was like yeah i'll just ignore them this is this is too bad but my life's not over and then her boyfriend does this and she's devastated like that reaction is totally reasonable and she she's just like the most mature person in this book which is i'm amazed given that she has no idea who her parents right are and has been raised by what she thinks is some strange. And
0: usually that role is taken by Elizabeth Wakefield, but Elizabeth gets knocked down a couple of points this time around because of the whole mom pregnant thing and how easily she buys into that idea. But yes, we have to add in another character to this drama. There's yet another boy.
1: Mm-hmm. This boy is it
0: Alan? Alan Walters. <laughs> He's tall. He's tall. He's smart. He's awkward. He likes to take pictures. He used to date mm-hmm. Robin Wilson. Remember that Gladiators before Robin Wilson turned into a cheating hussy. No, I like I like uh, Robin Wilson just fine. But she did steal Enid's boyfriend, and she didn't. She felt really bad about it, but they just fell in love at flight school. So, what are you gonna do? Anyway, flight school is a
1: special place.
0: We never really got to see much of Alan and. Robin's relationship beyond when they first get together in Robin's book which was way back in book number four Power Play I wonder like what I could be holding in my brain in the space that is taken up by the fact that Robin Wilson and Alan Walters got together in book number four Power Play hmm (laughs) let's not dwell (laughs) on that for too long uh Yeah, so... But Alan's a nice guy. He's, like, he's both uh, artistic
1: with the photography, he's smart because he's in science class, and then he's empathetic because she runs into him after Gordon just, like, breaks her, her heart, and then he's like, oh... I see what's going on here. You need a quiet
0: space to cry and a quiet shoulder to cry on. And he provides those things. Right. And he really doesn't have an ulterior motive, I don't think. Because this book makes Mm -hmm. it clear from Alan's first entrance that he is in love with Susan Stewart. Like, it's written all over his face. Elizabeth talks to him in, like, the lunch line and can see instantly. And even kind of tries to talk to him about how, like, well, if you like her, you could just go talk to her, you know. Just because she has a boyfriend doesn't mean she's going to be... You know, she can't, you can't be friends. And Alan is like totally willing to just be Susan's friend, you know, to sort of put his feelings aside. And he doesn't really have an ulterior motive, even when he like finally goes to talk to her in the library. Like she's eating alone later on in the book, and Elizabeth goes to talk to her and then runs into Alan again, and it's like she could really use a friend right now. And so. He goes and talks to her and ultimately ends up asking her out on a date on the same night that the Bridgewater Ball was supposed to happen. And he's so proud of himself. He's like, he didn't, if he'd stopped to think about it, he never would have done it. But he was really just trying to get her mind off of the fact that she was so sad. Which is
1: awesome, because he's treating her like a person. Yeah. So, yeah, he he ends up asking her out, but it wasn't this... This hurdle to, to get over. It was a gesture of, hey, let's spend some time together because he's established that he enjoys spending time with her and she's being responsive and it just is a really lovely coincidence that she's now got plans for the Bridgewater ball date.
0: That becomes important later. As soon as Gordon breaks up with Susan, Lila has this sort of come to Jesus moment where she's She did not expect it to go this far. Is that what you got from her conversation with Jessica? Um, I took away
1: that... From that, I took away that Lila was a professional schemer. You're probably right.
0: I'm giving her too much credit. So,
1: yeah, well... She's a 16-year-old girl, right? How much (laughs) credit does she deserve? Um, But I was really impressed that she was right on Gordon after that. Oh my gosh. Trying to flirt with him, get a date to the ball. I I was just like, oh wow, that's
0: amazing. And Jessica gets in on this too. So Lila calls Jessica and is like, would you believe what a jerk Gordon Stoddard is? Can you believe what he did? And I was sort of surprised that that was Lila's tack, so I was kind of taking it at face value but I I guess you're right she's sort of saving face by not taking pleasure in the fact that Susan has been dumped but instead like you know making staking her claim with Jessica that she thinks this is just horrible and Jessica's like oh you, you hate Gordon Stoddard so much I'm sure if he asked you to the Bridgewater Ball instead you would say no right and she says like oh I wouldn't say that I never said that. <laughs> and then Jessica is like, well, two can play at this game. Maybe I'll get Gordon's daughter to ask me to the Bridgewater Ball. She borrows Elizabeth's fancy dress that Heather made for her. Heather comes back in this book, uh, Gladiators from Book 35, Out of Control. Heather Sanford.
1: Well, it was really interesting, too. So we're, we get the scene of, and it is a sexualized scene, Right. Elizabeth is brushing her teeth. Jessica comes in and like do- nothing but a slip asks to borrow the dress that she knows is going to make her look amazing. And i was just like, oh, that's a little weird. Like, put a scene with a girl in a, in a, in a slip in, in this book. Also, a 16 year old girl wearing a slip. I
0: That's news <laughs> to me. Um, it was the 80s. I'd say okay. bring back the slip. I think I, I a got slip. I my first slip. <laughs> I think the slip is a good (laughs) garment, and I probably was wearing – my mother grew up with, like, slips, and so I had slips when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. even though it was well after this period. Not like a Mm – I I don't know how often I was wearing a slip when I was 16, but I had some, so I I would wear them. And I have some now, and I wear them sometimes, but they're hard to find.
1: They are hard to find. I got my first slip that I needed as a foundational garment for work, like work dresses, I got it two years ago, you know? And again, I'm staring at 40. So (laughs) a 16-year-old girl on a slip, I was just like, really? Um, But yeah, so I was just like, throughout this entire scene where now Lila and Jessica are frenemies, both going after Gordon because they want a ticket to the ball, I was shocked that Lila won. And I was thinking, like, isn't Jessica supposed to be this like a plus flirt and i wondered, you know is she losing her edge
0: it was a weird kind of like red herring plot point in the book too like like (laughs) almost as if they just needed to fill up some extra pages with jessica's scheme because there's already kind of this book is sort of like everything and nothing happening like it doesn't have a central theme but there's so much else going on that's filling in the pages that like so many characters get introduced or reintroduced Um, Because we haven't even talked about another very, very pivotal plot point in character. Another boy, Mm -hmm. you could say, who's main, except he's a man, and his main physical attribute, and is mentioned at least three times in the book, is that he has sandy hair. (laughs) (laughs) Did you notice that they kept
1: saying he was sandy haired? That was that was weird. Is that like a euphemism for blonde that's starting to go gray?
0: Oh, I think that's a good guess because this is an older man. He's probably in his 40s. His name is Jackson Croft, and he is an excellent like A-plus class film director. Yes. He's recently yes. had a terrible tragedy where his son mm-hmm. was killed in a car accident. Is that right? Yep. Yep. His wife was injured, but his son was killed. People die in car accidents a lot in this series. My goodness. Well, it's a car-based culture in California, right? You make a strong point, Meredith. (laughs) (laughs) So, a car, you know, cars are dangerous, and the danger involved in driving a car really affects the lives of so many. (laughs) And that's what Sweet Valley is really about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It does, it does. And it's uh, the way... This way that the book is written, Jackson's backstory is introduced shortly before Stephen Wakefield drives home from college to get involved in his mom's pregnancy rumor. Yeah. Right? And that scene is introduced with Stephen driving recklessly down the street to get home because... He just wanted to get home so fast. And I was wondering, like, is this on purpose? Is this a juxtaposition? Are we setting up
0: Stephen for a car accident? But no, no, we were not. Well, and this, but the book uses the son's death, which is just a little backstory detail, as Mm -hmm. um, a way to bring up students against drunk driving. Because Jackson Croft, so Jackson Croft has come to town. He's making a new movie. It's called La Luna. And he's going to be having a casting call for teenagers in Sweet Valley, like at the mall, or the Hart, Hampton place, whatever the that mall yeah, is called. Yeah, shopping plaza. Yeah. And of course, Jessica is really keen on being in this movie, because that's always where her mind goes right away whenever directors are involved. And Elizabeth is like, oh, maybe I can interview him for the paper about Students Against Drunk Driving. And maybe the article will be so great that the local paper will want to print it too, because it's actually a good story. But um, so su- Students Against Drunk Driving come up a little bit because the son was killed by a drunk driver. Mm-hmm. um elizabeth doesn't think to mention to jackson croft that she was in a coma for uh quite some time a month i believe um when she was in a car accident when and struck by a drunk driver the ghostwriter maybe didn't read that book <laughs> oh my God, that seems like such an obvious in <laughs> yeah like this happened to me jackson croft but um elizabeth has apparently forgotten all about her coma and oh <laughs> Does she has some brain damage some memory loss oh definitely <laughs> Oh, no. So, but why is Jackson Croft really in town, Meredith? Well, he uh, evidently
1: had another child before his marriage and son, uh, marriage happened and his son was born. A child he's Uh, been neglecting, lo, these 16 years and has never even met. Shockingly. Um, A girl child, one might say. (laughs)
0: A girl child, exactly. (laughs) Can you put the pieces together, gladiators? Mrs. Reister had an affair with Jackson Croft before. It wasn't an affair like they were cheating. It was like they were in love. And then he left her and she was pregnant. And she said... I don't need you in my life anymore. And then he got remarried and then, or he got married in the first place. I don't know, to Veronica, his wife. Yeah,
1: it was, it was a little weird because they talk about their relationship, Helen and Jackson. And he alludes to some statement he made saying, Oh, well, I couldn't offer you marriage then. And the implication is he's so sorry about that. And then he left the country to do something, not knowing that she was, pregnant. And so she moves to another town, sets up shop, sets up a house of lies to raise her daughter in and <laughs> Jackson somehow like gets wind that he has a daughter but never makes any attempt to contact Helen or to meet Susan or to send child support or do anything of the kind until years later his son dies. So he must have had some come to Jesus moment of maybe I want to meet my other child.
0: Yeah. I mean, and he says as much, like it makes him realize how terrible it was that he didn't get to see this girl grow up. We have this whole long scene between Mrs. Reister, whose name is Helen, Helen, Helen and Jackson, where they talk about it and we kind of get up to speed sort of, Uh, but to set the scene, let me just say that Susan comes home after she hears this rumor about her mother being insane and demands to know who her mother is. But Mrs. Reister refuses to tell her. Then we get this scene where it it happens rarely in these books. So rarely that it's always a little bit shocking when there are no teenagers involved. It's just adults. And we have Mrs. Reister staring sadly into the mirror and some poetic lines about how the the person that she sees is so distant. And (laughs) she writes this letter to Susan that I guess I will read to you. My darling Susan, you'll never know how hard this is for me, but it's time you knew the truth. I am your mother, even though I've led you to believe otherwise for so many, many years. And you have to know why I did it. I was never married to your father. We were both young and very much in love, but... He was very truthful with me and said he could not offer me marriage. He was at the start of a career that he knew would consume every ounce of his strength and commitment. I accepted it, but I still loved him and wanted his child. I came to Sweet Valley after you were born and let it be known that I was merely your guardian. I didn't do it to deceive or hurt anyone, though. Please believe me, and least of all you." But back then, how could an unmarried woman raise her child without being shunned or scorned? I couldn't let you grow up with that kind of stigma. I didn't want you to have to go through life ashamed of yourself or of me. I thought I would tell you before now, but somehow I couldn't. And then you became so popular with the people who could help you get ahead and give you all the wonderful things I wanted for you but couldn't provide. How could I tell you then that your mother was only a waitress? I knew your best hope was for you not to know, to keep believing that you were really a princess in disguise or something just as good. And then she looks at the letter and she tears it up into a thousand pieces. So the reader gets to be the benefit of this information, but poor Susan does not.
1: And I just like, what is going through her head? What's, what does she think is going to happen? The, you know, her daughter gets to her 18th birthday. And learns that there's nothing um, particularly special in the monetary way about her, her heritage. And that she really needs to work for a living and she needs to perhaps go to college and set herself up for success. But she spent, at that time, she will have spent an entire life thinking that maybe there's an inheritance coming. Maybe there's something else for her. I think it it's just goes back to the abuse. Just like, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah.
0: Also, it's such bullshit, and it's so insulting to single mothers mm-hmm. and the children of single mothers everywhere. Of which, in 1987, there were many, many, many. Um, right. Although I do remember... Do, do you remember the thing with Murphy Brown and, like, Dan Quayle? So the show Murphy Brown was on the air in... Late 80s, early 90s? I guess it must have been the late 80s, around the same time. And Murphy Brown has a baby out of wedlock. And Dan Mm -hmm. Quayle was all mad about it, that this character was like a bad example for women. I
1: mean, I saw the show. I remember it being a big deal and and like such an example of um, Murphy Brown's empowerment as a woman. Like, you know, she didn't need to get married. She wanted to – she had the means and the ability to have a child, so – she went and she made it happen and that was like a really great empowering thing i had no idea that dan Quayle had anything to say about it
0: yeah and in the show they actually i think ended up talking about like bringing it up and the fiction picked up on it and ran with it
1: it that was a really big deal in television history is murphy brown's baby
0: yeah yeah but anyway i this is it's such a it's so disgusting it really is and you want like you were so mad at Helen at this point and then she tears up the letter and it's like you really did dig yourself a deep grave at this point like yes. the longer this has been going on the worse you've made it and you've kind of ruined your daughter's ch- whole youth you know yes in a yes, way absolutely like she thinks of it as like oh I did this great thing for her because she's so popular and she would have been an outcast otherwise but sh- what is more important to a kid than like their parents Exactly.
1: And maybe not when they're a teenager, but from birth through age 12 or 13. Yeah, your life is your parents and you need that stability to form your personality.
0: So kind of at the end of this scene, I believe it is there's a knock on Mm -hmm. the door and it's Jackson Croft and she opens the door. It's so great. It's like, I knew you'd come. (laughs) (laughs) And then we find out that. Jackson is Susan's dad, and they have this whole long conversation about how Jackson wants to meet her and have her in his her life. And she's Helen is just like I'm not ready for that. But then Susan walks in and sees them. They're drinking wine. They're drinking obviously white wine. (laughs) (laughs) And Susan can tell instantly that something weird is going on. And her Mrs. Reister like gets up and runs away, and like screams and cries and runs off.
1: Right. And so the natural thing to assume is this world famous film director has somehow attacked your mother. But no, that's not the uh, conclusion that Susan takes away. She's just
0: like, oh, what's going on? Yeah. Um, So the, the most amazing part of this dynamic at this point is that Helen has not told Jackson that she has been lying to Susan all this time. And because she's she's such a coward, she screams and runs away when Susan enters the room. Jackson still doesn't know. So this is the best part of the whole book. This is the part of the book where I really like – I sat – I was reading this book late last night, very late, like too late. I waited too long to start it. And I was like, how am I going to read an entire chapter of a book on my podcast? (laughs) I won't do that. But it's just like – it's so delicious. This is chapter 12. I will see what I can do here to keep it from being a 10-minute reading. Um, so Susan is anxiously asking this director, who she's recognized as as this famous director, Jackson Croft. She's like, are you Jackson Croft? She's the most bizarre thing. I don't even know who directs the latest blockbusters. Well, who, who apparently he's things? won, like, the Palme d'Or and he's been celebrated at the Academy Awards. Like, he seems like he's a pretty famous director. Like but the
1: only attribute he has is that he's got sandy hair, not like a really distinctive nose. Well, I mean, or... like if,
0: I don't know who, like if Quentin Tarantino were sitting in your mother's living room, you <laughs> would walk in and be like, oh my God, Quentin Tarantino.
1: <laughs> okay, that's right. That's right. And then I would also understand why my mom screams and runs away. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a it much now. more
0: interesting uh, way to imagine this book? <laughs> yes <laughs> done more th- this is more i think that jackson croft is more of a steven spielberg got it but like if you saw steven spielberg sitting in your mother's living room you also would be like oh my god steven spielberg wouldn't you i would be but i mean i, I guess that's know. my life so i
1: was I a, would just assume that it's a steven spielberg look alike who happens to know my mom yeah
0: yeah, yeah. that's Whereas true quentin tarantino he's much more distinctive looking that's he's got, true he's got a look You would be more, with Steven Spielberg, you'd be more like, oh my god, you look just like Steven Spielberg. Has anybody ever told you that before? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Quentin Tarantino, yeah, I I agree with you. All right, so, (laughs) but that's not what's happened. Susan has recognized Jackson Croft. Yeah. And asked him what he's doing there. He held his wine glass in both hands and stared into its depths for a moment. Finally, he drew a deep breath and looked up, meeting her eyes steadily. Susan, I'm your father. "'My father?' she repeated. "'She groped blindly for a chair and lowered herself into it. "'My father?' "'For so long she had devoted all her hopes to finding her real mother. "'She had almost forgotten that somewhere she had a father, too.' "'I don't understand,' she whispered, staring up at him. "'Susan, I know this is kind of a shock.' "'A shock?' "'All she could do was echo his words automatically. "'Her mind was numb.' He sat down across from her, leaning forward intently, his forearms on his knees. His eyes, full of hope and apprehension, scanned her face. Oh, he tells her, "'You see, I left your mother when she was pregnant,' he explained in a contrite tone. "'I... I didn't know she was at the time.' He frowned, as though remembering back through the years. "'I was going on an assignment to Venezuela to make a documentary about the military dictator.' "'Oh, you don't want to hear about that,' he interrupted himself with an angry gesture.' Susan stared at him, amazed. This intense, vital man, a man respected and admired around the world for his insightful movies, was her father. He was clearly a man of strong passions, dedicated, committed to his work. Her mind was reeling. So she is thinking very highly of Jackson Croft at this moment. (laughs) Um, And he goes on to say that he's sorry and that, you know, he should never have left her alone for so long and, and She knows because she read in the paper that his son died. Mm -hmm. And so he says, you know, that's why I came. It was a statement of fact rather than a question. Already there was a bond of understanding between them. Anyway, I hope maybe we can see something of each other. He continued. I've neglected you for too long. As she looked at him, she began to see something of herself in his face and her heart swelled with emotion. I'd like that she whispered, unsure of her exact feelings. But she knew she meant it. Relief washed over his face. "'That's great, Susan. Maybe you could even come to L.A. and stay with us. Veronica knows all about you, and she'd love to meet you. And I'm sure your mother wouldn't mind.' Susan gasped. She felt almost dizzy. "'My mother? But, I mean, who?' Jackson Croft's forehead creased in a puzzled frown. "'What do you mean?' What about her? Who is she? The words dropped out like tiny stones. She stared at him, imploring him for the answer she was afraid to hear. I don't understand, Susan. He looked at her in an obvious confusion, and she saw his eyes move to stare at the doorway behind her. She turned slowly in her seat. Mrs. Reister stood framed in the door of the hallway, shaking her head. An expression of sheer anguish was etched on the woman's face. Jackson Croft cleared his throat. Helen, doesn't she know? He whispered, his voice filled with incredulity. The woman still shook her head, staring wordlessly into Susan's eyes. Anyway, so Susan puts it together, but... (laughs) Finally.
1: Finally. (laughs) <laughs> finally in the most dramatic version possible yeah.
0: and that, she forgets her mother change. like instantly right mm-hmm. should they yeah. have a beautiful they're so she's like i always hoped it was you
1: yep exactly and i was just thinking throughout the entire thing that susan's got the most empathy the most sympathy the most capacity for forgiveness that i have seen in anybody fictional or real
0: <laughs> susan's teenager an
1: she is. And for, and, and bizarrely, bizarrely an angel, like she should be angry. She should be angry at the world. That's what you do when you're 16. But she's just like, all right, I'm glad my mom has been here all this time. And I am glad that it's Helen because I liked her anyway. I'm glad that my dad is here and that he's, you know, interested in being in my life. She's just so mature.
0: Yeah, well, but her willingness to forgive actually comes up in kind of a negative way pretty soon because. Yeah. So, what's happened? Lila is going to the dance with Gordon and they're like a hot item now, Mm -hmm. sort of. The. Everybody comes to the casting call and Elizabeth interviews Jackson and then they find out when they go back to talk to him and Helen, sorry, Susan shows up that. They find out the truth that Jackson is Susan's dad and Jessica's there. So the rumor spreads like wildfire again or the truth this time. Mm -hmm. And everybody's like, oh, my God, Susan, that's so amazing. You're Jackson Croft's daughter. So it's not her mother that's an important famous person. It's her father. So, again, very fairy tale. It's a happy ending. He, you know, her king father comes and she is a princess after all. Right. But then there's the scene at the beach disco at the end of the book. Also, also beach disco? <laughs> yeah. The things that we start to just swallow after 37 books. Yes, the beach disco is the place where the teens go and dance. I wish- so is, is it on the is it just the beach or is it a
1: place called the,
0: the beach it's disco? a place called the beach disco. I believe that it is on the beach with like a, a like a patio that looks out onto the beach. Okay. Okay. And it's so but- cool. I wish this were real. <laughs>
1: <laughs> i just didn't know they had discos in 1987 i thought that was more of a 1977 yeah kinda. i know what you mean and then the kids are allowed to go on their own because it's all the
0: kids. it seems like it's kids only it's like a teen disco <laughs> <laughs> there's never any adults okay. there thank god i think a teen disco is a great idea and it could work in a small town Got it. Okay,
1: cool. Yes. Okay, so we're at the beach disco.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're there. And Susan tells Elizabeth like, oh, it's so great. Gordon asked me to go to the Bridgewater Ball again. Can you believe it? Now that the rumor is cleared up, he wants to date me again. And Lila hears this and is like, Mm -hmm. that snake. And Elizabeth is like, but... Didn't you have a date with Alan that night? She doesn't bother to say, what the fuck? Like, why would you go back to that asshole?
1: Right. And, like, everybody turned their back on you, and nobody wanted you at the Bridgewater Ball. So you definitely saw their true colors, but now the second you get that ticket back, you want to go? Like, what... What's yeah.
0: wrong with you? If I were Elizabeth, I think I would probably yell at Susan. Like, yeah, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're as bad as them. Luckily, exactly. though, the moment that she reminds Susan that she had a date with Alan, Susan totally has a change of heart and basically gives Gordon what for. She's like, I already yeah. have plans that night. Plans with Alan. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think we'll be going to the Bridgewater Ball that night or any night. Which, good for her. Yeah. She, I I can
1: totally forgive a momentary lapse in her judgment because she had been looking forward to the Bridgewater Ball for the entire book. I get it. Um, and I was really proud of... Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the Bridgewater Ball, which might or may not be teen-only and might or might not be a fundraiser, might or might not be something that is actually... Exactly. Desirable.
0: Everybody wants to go.
1: Obviously. Obviously. Um, but I'm also really proud of Lila, who even though I'm mad at her, for starting a rumor and scheming and winning. Um,
0: and just being the worst the date. in general. Yeah, just being kind the of worst. Person, and care, having her priorities all wrong.
1: Priorities all wrong and besting Jessica, getting that date with Gordon, like, uh, all sorts of bad. Um, but because, like, she she stood up for herself in the end, and Gordon was like, oh, yeah. Lila, we're still going, right? And she like spills a drink on him or something. She's like, no. She dumps just, her soda on him. She yeah. throws her soda on him. Yeah. And I was just really proud of her for, for sticking up for herself in that moment. Although I am not proud of her for most of the rest of what she did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. She does not deserve our pride <laughs> for any of her no. behavior, except for the, the final straw. Um, and nobody finds out that Lila started this rumor. Like, Lila doesn't get any comeuppance. Nobody gets yeah, come what's up Yeah,
1: what's with that? Like, nobody, there's no Except for Gordon. I guess Gordon does. Yeah,
0: yeah. We'll probably never hear from Gordon again. That's my prediction.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Unless we have to go to the country club again. Um, but then also we're back at the Beach Disco and they're trying to wrap up all the storylines. And then this just, like, stood out to me as something, like, really kind of bizarre. So so we've cleared up the pregnancy rumor. Yeah, right? the the parents have said like, "Okay, no, we're not pregnant. S- sorry. This is all a mis- com- miscommunication and it's funny." And so we're at the beach disco and and Jessica and Elizabeth are laughing and they're like, "Oh, this is just another one of uh Jessica's fiasco's." And I was thinking like, "Wait a minute. Jessica was smart. She put two and two together. She actually read her health textbook, learned something, applied it to the world." Uh, identified patterns and then was like, "Oh yes, I I'm I'm using my knowledge to identify that my mother is likely pregnant, and she's being it's it's her fiasco. That doesn't seem right. Like she should be praised for having learned something and paid attention
0: in class." Yeah, and you know what? You make a really good point because also you and I both said at the outset of this episode that we were sure that yeah. Alice was pregnant. Or, not, I mean, I knew that she wasn't because I've read this book before, but, <laughs> <laughs> and also the books that follow it, and I knew that no baby was forthcoming. Yeah. But, um, there, yeah, we, we thought we drew the same conclusions, you know? 100%. and it's Such a weird set of events that, and, and Stephen and Elizabeth believed it right away based on the same evidence that Jessica presented. It's not Jessica's fault. For once, something's not Jessica's fault. <laughs> right. And the parents were being cagey, and here's a, a like, for example, but mom, Elizabeth said nervously, you've been talking about about names and getting cravings for pistachio ice cream. Her father's hoot of laughter stopped her in mid-sentence. And that made you think your mother was pregnant? Yeah. So. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that alone is its just, anyway. Regina gets brought up a few times in this book. Regina Morrow, oh. who we haven't really heard from in a while. And the fact that she is... Her deafness is cured, and she's back from Switzerland, and she's trying to find Elizabeth throughout the book. And at the end of the book, she tells Elizabeth that uh, she's got these brochures about the school called Interlaken. She thinks Elizabeth mm-hmm. should really look into it. So yeah. put a pin in that. Hold that in your heads. Because what we're going to do right now is I'm going to ask you, Meredith, if you think that you are a Jessica or an Elizabeth. <laughs> um.
1: There's a couple of things that point me to Elizabeth, and those things are, um, she's, she's a more quote-unquote responsible one, right? So there's a scene where they're driving in the Fiat, which is a convertible, and they are going to the casting call for extras for Jackson's film, and Jessica runs off and she's like, Yeah, I'll see you I'll see you in there, leaving her sister to put the top back up on the convertible. Mm-hmm. Um That I mean, that's the kind of thing like I get stuck doing because, you know, I'm the only one who's gonna think of, Well, what if the car gets stolen or what if it rains? Even though it doesn't rain in California during the season, right? She's the one who's essentially got a job, a stable boyfriend. I mean, I know she doesn't have a paid job, but she's a, the journalist. She's writing the, the columns for her school newspaper. Whereas Jessica gets to be more carefree. She gets to have creative flights of fancy. She's got the mental bandwidth to snoop around with the mother and, and get a team together to um, confront the parents of like, you know, are you or are you not pregnant? She's more of a leader. Um, whereas Elizabeth has the details uh on lockdown
0: yeah what are you oh i'm a textbook elizabeth (laughs) i relate to elizabeth so intensely in these books that even when she's unreasonable or like irrational i sort of get it or also i'm like mad at her but in a way that it's like don't make that same mistake again oh yeah anger what do you think frank is (sighs) Am I getting in trouble? Uh. No, I'm pretty sure that Frank said that he was a Jessica. <laughs> okay. I agree. I agree. Um. Oh, cool. It's like the newlywed game. Not that you guys are newlyweds, but you guys, your card yeah. match, so you win. Yeah. Uh,
1: we're 10 years this year. So, in, in, in many ways, uh, our marriage is kind of like the, the relationship that the twins seem to have, whereas they work really well as a unit. Elizabeth has her skills that she's bringing to bear, and Jessica has her skills that she's bringing to bear. And together, they hold an entire book series.
0: <laughs> That's only maybe Frank and Meredith can have uh, their own book series for teens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> About working professionals in uh, Chicago. <laughs> teens love that kind of shit, right? I Obviously. It's going to be a bestseller. <laughs> well meredith it has been so wonderful talking about this book with you and there are a few more things that i'm sure there's so much to dig into like thematically with this book because the story was so all over the place and touched on so many things
1: it really did yeah
0: but for now maybe you could tease us for book number 38 all right will
1: elizabeth leave sweet valley to study in switzerland
0: find out in sweet valley high number 38 leaving home very exciting stuff gladiators thank you so much for listening meredith halsey thank you so much for being my wonderful guest uh tell your friends about sweet valley diaries thank you so much for listening and subscribing and for your support uh follow sweet valley diaries on instagram for a treat at least once a week that is sweet valley themed and often about the book we're reading but also i posted my story uh, like funny quotes and pages from where i'm reading right now and uh, tune in next week for a little more conversation, and the week after that, book 38 Leaving Home. Thanks. Bye. Bye. So, as soon as Gordon Stoddard <laughs> um, breaks up with. What's her name? Susan. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I take back all of my, uh, all of my bragging earlier about my like humble bragging about the knowing character names and stuff. Okay.